Look, I'm not a pessimist, but I am a realist. And I know that the sober realism of our day is that the true gospel has been diluted by all of these false prophets. Heartache, persecution, injustice, it is very often the lot of God's people. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in 1 Kings 21, looking at the life and times of the prophet Elijah. In this chapter, we see the wicked king Ahab asking a man by the name of Naboth to sell him his vineyard. Naboth, who is a godly man, declines. And today we'll see the absolute evil that Ahab's wife Jezebel perpetrates in order to secure Naboth's land. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he begins reading from verse 4. So Ahab came into his house, sullen and vexed, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away in his face and ate no food. So he stomps off, flops down on the bed, turns his head towards the wall, and he says, I'm not eating. Now, I'll try not to make any modern-day applications to anyone here, but I want you to see that what he is doing, he's throwing a little fit. He's acting like a big baby. I want that vineyard for my vegetable garden. And the Scripture says that the eyes of man many times, especially a lost man, are never satisfied. It's especially true if you let your heart become covetous. Look at verse 5. But Jezebel, now enters Jezebel. Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you're not eating food? She wants to know why he's so upset, why he has gone to bed when it's not time for bed, and why he won't come down for dinner. So he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Notice her response here in verse 7. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Do you understand what she's saying? Are you the king of Israel or aren't you? Are you a king or are you a wimp? Are you going to let some local yokel grape farmer have what you deserve? Look, my daddy would have never allowed such a thing. He was king and you're king. You're not subject to the law, Ahab. You are the law. That's the essence of what this evil woman is hammering home. So notice with, I'm sure, a devilish anger in her heart, she says, arise, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard. And in the Hebrew text, that's the portion that is emphasized. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And so her covetous evil plan begins to unfold. And she is going to be guilty of four sinful, wicked activities. Forgery, false witness, perjury, and murder. And she is going to incite a crime wave that will take down an innocent, godly man. Now follow along, starting with me here in verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people. 
So using Ahab's letterheads, she sends a letter to the elders and the nobles there down in Jezreel. And she seals the letter with the king's signet ring, which means Ahab literally had to take it off his finger and she put the stamp on the letter. He's fully aware of the evil that is transpiring such that when we come down to verse 19, God will hold him guilty for murder and for theft. He may not have pulled the trigger, but as the head of his home, he yielded to evil. And so Jezebel, she does the dirty work and notice what she writes, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people. Now Naboth is not about to change his righteous convictions for the whim of some king. He's not about to give up his property that God says he should not give up. And so since he denies her husband on religious grounds, she turns to a religious platform and calls for a religious fast. And if you've studied the Old Testament at all, you know that there were times in Israel's history when the people would fast. And sometimes if God's hand was against them and they wanted to find out who in essence was the Achan in the camp. And so she calls a fast, and she has Naboth seated at the head of the table, not because she wants to honor him. No, this is just a religious ploy. She has a plan to destroy him. And the elders and the nobles of the land know all about it. She was saying to the Jews, look, God is angry with us. There's a problem here in the community. And so we're going to have this fast. It's just a religious trick of sorts. And with that plan, they get Naboth. Naboth, they seat him at the head of the table, again, not to honor him, but to punish him. And again, she's going to accuse him, proclaim a fast, and seat Naboth at the head of the table, and seat two worthless men before him, and let them testify against him, saying, you curse God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders, the nobles, they get these two worthless men who bear false testimony, and they said, you cursed both God and the king. And so her fast is basically based on a religious principle where God said you need at least two witnesses. You might want to put out in the margin next to this verse, Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6. Let me read it to you. There Moses wrote, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, either one, two or three witnesses, By the way, God recites this principle in the New Testament. You don't believe every accusation against an elder unless there's two or three witnesses. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Now, it may be an injustice, but it's a legal injustice. It's legal, it's religious, but it's going to bring about an illegal death. And we are doing the same today. Over a million babies every year are being torn apart limb by limb by limb in a mother's womb. We can rationalize and say it's legal. And this woman is rationalized. It's clean. It's neat. It's legal. But she is going to shed innocent blood. Two worthless men say, you curse God and the king. The Hebrew Bible reads, testify against him saying, you bless God and the king. It's a euphemism in Hebrew that means the opposite. In fact, it's come down to our day where we say, well, he blessed him out, meaning he really gave it to him. 
In either case, this woman who hates God used the principle from God's law, and she wants to basically bring down Yahweh on his own turf using his own righteous word. Now, right out on the margin, and let me read it to you, Exodus 22, 28. There God said through Moses, you shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. In addition, Leviticus chapter 24, we're told, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, if anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Now, why not take him out just on that one charge? You curse God, you're a dead man. Why manufacture two charges? Curse God and you curse the king. Well, it's a good question, so I'm glad you asked it this morning. If Naboth, if Naboth had only cursed God, then they would have taken him outside of the city they would have stoned him to death, but her ultimate objective would not have been accomplished. If he had cursed God only, then the land, based on the principles of kerem, or, or, or uh, kerem, it's a Hebrew word that means devoted to. You can read all about this in Leviticus chapter 27. Then the land would have reverted to the priesthood. But understand, if he cursed God and the king, then he's a traitor to the crown and is a payment to the king, then the land would go directly to the king. And so they accuse them of cursing both God and the king. They get these two worthless men, as God describes them, and they frame him on a capital charge, and they convince the people of the guilt. And so the scripture says, they took him out and stoned him to death. A criminal could not be stoned within the city, you had to take him outside of the city where he would be executed. And that's why the Bible makes it very clear in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was crucified outside of the city wall. And so here's a woman, Jezebel, that has really become a representative name for evil. And that's why moms and dads, I've never met a, a girl named Jezebel. Have you? I've never met one. There's a reason behind that. So verse 11 the men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. So as Jezebel was accustomed to, she had her cronies. She had her men who had worked for her. And the elders of the city and the nobles, they confer with these two worthless men. They cooperate together. And off comes this wicked, evil crime. And so they carry out the plans. They're like bureaucratic robots. You say, but look, she had her mafia. You can't blame the people for joining in. I mean, after all, you know, they had families too, the elders and the nobles especially. They had a livelihood. They had a job to make. They, they had to protect their own children. We know how evil that they just desired to live themselves. You can understand the dilemma, but you can never justify their evil. And these verses remind us that injustice always flourishes where there are weak men. Wickedness grows in the midst of weakness. It flourishes not because of a lack of goodness, but because of a lack of guts. Men who are unwilling to stand up for what God has said to be true. Politicians 
who in our day are allowing this lawlessness to spread in our land, but they're afraid to stand up for what is right because they might be labeled. So these elders, these nobles, they're in the city of Jezreel. They are willing to bend the rules. They are willing to serve this idolatrous, evil woman because they fear the woman more than they fear God. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 10 that his people would many times be brought before leaders, before governors and kings. And in the same breath, he then says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, that is God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a decision you have to make. Will you fear man or will you fear God? So watch the plan as it's carried out. Notice verse 12. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then the two worthless men came in and sat before him. And the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. You can see him jerking him out of the seat. Women are screaming, children are crying. And one by one, they throw their stones. His limbs are crushed. His legs are broken. His head is smashed over like an eggshell broken in someone's hand. And he loses his life. Why? For obeying the laws of God. And I'm sure there were some legalists who thought, couldn't he just bend a little bit? I mean, for the sake of his life, for the sake of his wife, for the sake of his family? Not this man. He is a part of that group that the writers to the Hebrews describes as being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world is not worthy. And so he is unjustly pulverized to death. And it appears that his testimony is mute. Look at verse 14. It tells us, then they sent word to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. How convenient. He is dead and not only is he dead, put out in the margin, 2 Kings 9, 26, she wipes out his every son in the family. Not only do they stone Naboth, they stone all of his sons. No possible inheritance rights. It's a clean, done deal. It is so cunning and so evil. She made it to be an open and shut case. And it all began with covetousness in Ahab's heart. And now it's led to theft and murder of a man and the sons in his family. Look at verse 15. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, and let me just pause here for a moment. I don't know what Jezebel was doing when she received the news from the elders and the nobles that he was dead some 20 miles away, but I know that she received it with a sense of joy and delight and accomplishment because of what then she says. Notice Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. Did she care that he had a grieving wife that was washing the body of her husband or her sons with her own tears for burial? Did she care that outside the walls of the city that Naboth's blood was being licked up by the dogs? 
All that mattered to her is that she had defied the living God, Yahweh, and she got her way. She was not grieved by her own wicked sin any more than a wolf is sad that they have just devoured a lamb. She says, I have wonderful news, husband. He's dead. It's ours. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession. So here in this first section, we are reminded that many times the outcome of God's people in this world is not always good. Remember the Old Testament, the scripture says in the New Testament, was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And it's a reminder that very often God's people are treated unjustly. Peter reminds us in his first letter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is one of the critical lessons of 1 Kings 21. And it's a lesson that Jesus teaches in the Gospels. Now, I know it's difficult for Christians often in the West to grasp this principle because we are being plummeted by slick preachers who tell us that God's will is for everything to be sweet and wonderful. And so Benny Hinn says, and I quote him, he promises, God promises to heal all, everyone, any, any, whatsoever, everything, all our diseases. That means that not even a headache, sinus problem, not even a toothache, nothing, no sickness should come your way. If that were true, if God wants to remove our problems right down to our dental work, if he wants to bless us with money as this same false teacher teaches that you can be rich, then how do you explain a guy like Naboth? Look, I'm not a pessimist, but I am a realist. And I know that the sober realism of our day is that the true gospel has been diluted by all of these false prophets. Heartache, persecution, injustice, it is very often the lot of God's people. But I also learn from this portion of Scripture that we have a Naboth who understands. We have a great high priest who with similar false witnesses was accused of blaspheming God and rebelling against Caesar. And they garnered two false witnesses and what they meant for evil, God used according to his predetermined plan and foreknowledge to bring about your salvation and mine for anyone who will believe. And so Matthew says, now the chief priests the whole council, that's the Sanhedrin, kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward. Two false witnesses. That's all that was needed, and it worked. Isaiah says he was crushed. He was pierced. He was scourged for our sin. But right before that, he described some of the heartache that he carried during this life, that surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. We have one who can identify with injustice. He shared in the sufferings and the injustices of the neighbors of this world. 
Indeed, the scripture says you cannot leave this world as a believer without having some kind of persecution. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It may come, and most often Jesus taught it comes verbally, but it may come physically. But he said, blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely because of me, for great is your reward in heaven. Now that's the lesson to the first section. Saved people will pay now. You will pay if you live for Christ and you speak for him. You will suffer maybe verbal abuse, maybe physical abuse, but you will suffer. The second lesson of this chapter is that lost people will pay later. They will pay later. Now, when you come to the end of verse 16, it seems like everything has been taken care of. The Naboth, Naboth case is just closed. And I'm sure Jezebel congratulated herself for having pulled off this wicked classic crime. The Samaritan government has run over this Jezreelian fool. We've won! And when you read the first half of this chapter the first time, the ignorant critic will say, where is your God? Is he deaf? Is he paralyzed? Can he do anything? And then like a breath of fresh air, verse 17, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Now we've been studying Elijah the Tishbite. And we've seen that he is a prophet who lives in a time where tens of thousands of Israelis have forsaken God. They have torn down his altars and they have violated his covenants. And you know that when God tells Elijah the prophet what has happened to Naboth, a God-fearer, his heart is broken and it's filled with righteous anger. Now this series... If you've been with us, we went from chapter 19 to chapter 21. And if you remember, if you were here last time, we saw Elijah the prophet had passed his mantle on to Elisha because he's going to disciple him for years to follow and build into his life so that when he is removed from this earth, though the worker is gone, the work will continue. He's one of earth's greatest heroes, and he's certainly one of heaven's greatest saints. And so God's word comes to him. Look at verse 18. Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel. I love the way verse 18 opens. It's in sharp contrast to verse 15, where she said to Ahab, arise, take possession of the vineyard. And I'm so glad that I live in a universe, though that while the devil has his Ahabs, we have a God who can say to his Elijahs, arise, arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord, you have murdered and have also stolen, taken possession? Have you murdered and also taken possession? Yes, you have. And you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. Now this overlooked, ignored factor among wicked men and wicked women and a wicked society is is changed when we realize how death equalizes everyone. You know what the death rate is? One for one. 
100%. And death is a great equalizer. The writer of the Hebrews says, for it is appointed for a man to die once and after this comes judgment. And so verses 18 and 19 are a reminder to us that no one escapes the judgment of God. Doesn't matter how rich or powerful or how well liked they may be, no one escapes the justice of God. And Elijah, he finds out from God himself. He doesn't hear it from other people. God himself says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. And it looked like a slick, airtight job that it was all done. Her letters have already been shredded. All the evidence is gone. And all it cost her was a postage stamp. And it's done and they've got the property. He may be dead to Jezebel and Ahab, but Naboth is not dead to God Almighty. And by the way, it is a reminder to me of this same truth when Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica in his second letter, they are just being beaten black and blue and killed. Why? Because they confessed Jesus as Lord. And it was so intense, they thought, maybe we misunderstood Paul. Maybe we misunderstood the rapture, which he will clarify in the second Thessalonians chapter two. No, you haven't missed it. It's sometimes just a part of being a Christian. And it reminds us, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Wonderful, when? And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Likewise, in the Revelation, we studied it. John has a vision of all the lost people of all time brought together at the end of the millennial reign of Messiah. And he said, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Just like God did not miss Ahab, he does not miss anyone. He writes that he saw the great and the small. No one is so great that they can be missed and no one is so small that they will be ignored. The big shot, the little shot, the famous, those who no one knew their name, the wealthy, the poor, it doesn't matter, kings and paupers, the lost of all time, all who say no to Yeshua will meet God in eternal judgment. Ahab may have won the land, but when we conclude our message tomorrow, we'll see God's man Elijah will be there to keep him from enjoying his ill-gotten gains. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program ELI7. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you'd like to give a one-time or a recurring gift, Call us at 877-787-7478 or click the Give button online at searchthescriptures.org. Thank you. Tomorrow, the conclusion of our message, The Justice of God. Join us then as we search the scriptures. For thousands of years, no place on earth has been more precious to God's people than the land of Israel. 
It was here that God first chose to bring the Messiah, and it is where He will usher in His second coming. Nothing compares to visiting the places you've only read about. For those serious students of the Bible, a trip to Israel adds depth and interest to every page of Scripture. Search the Scriptures Israel's tour is far more than a vacation. It's a spiritual journey that will impact your faith in an intense way. I'd love for you to go with me to Israel September the 28th to October the 8th or October the 7th to October the 17th. If you would like to have information, you can go online to stsisraeltour.com. The price is inclusive for everything. Airfare, hotels, three meals a day, tips, everything. 